Hey there, creatives. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I am really excited to bring this next series um, to the show. It's going to be a special series dedicated to speaking with different uh, people, different therapists uh, involved in the Expressive Therapy Summit. If you've never heard of the Expressive Therapy Summit, it is an intermodal um, international conference uh, that really is dedicated to experiential learning and um, brings together all of the different disciplines in the world of therapy. There are social workers, there's art therapists, dance therapists, music therapists, play therapists, any kind of therapist really imaginable, and everybody sharing their experiential knowledge and hands-on learning um, activities. And it's a really wonderful event. And usually it's four days um, in the fall in New York City. And there is an LA component, which happens in the spring. Um, in this fall, I am interviewing probably, I would say eight to 10 people um, that are either directly involved in the summit or are going to be presenting on their uh, topic of um, expertise. And um, we'll be learning about their clinical practices um, and what they'll be teaching at the event. And so you'll get kind of a snapshot and hopefully in each conversation that we have, um, the, the key takeaways will relate to the work of creating something out of nothing, which is kind of the object of um, bringing your practice to life or creating that therapeutic tool, writing a book, whatever it is that as a therapist you're passionate about and want to bring to life. And that's really the focus of the Creative Psychotherapist podcast show. Um, in the first episode, I am interviewing Barry Cohen, who is the summit leader. And um, Barry's also an art therapist and a former art therapy educator. He also is the creator of the Diagnostic Drawing Series, which is uh, an art therapy assessment tool. Um, and in our conversation, we'll be talking about how the summit came to be. And you'll also hear a little bit about um, some of the roles that I've played um, over the years because I've been involved in the summit um, since the beginning. And it's something that I'm really passionate about and love. And I think part of being involved in the summit really allowed me to move in the direction that I'm in currently. I don't know if I would be here um, at this point without having participated in the summit and developing it and bringing it to life, sharing it with other people. I was very involved as the social media marketing person uh, for the event for many, many years until um, Laura Bader took over that a couple of years ago for me because I just got too busy with my practice. But I'm hoping that you're going to really enjoy the conversations uh, that we have. And um, so, yeah. So this is going to be the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series. Let us know what you think. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice-building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater 
impact in their communities and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Creative Psychotherapist Podcast. I am very excited to bring my next guest onto the show. Uh, her name is Nancy Sherlong, and she is a licensed clinical social worker, and um, she works in the states of both New York and Connecticut. She is a registered poetry therapist, a certified journal therapist, and a trainer in both methods. Nancy is a writer and integrative psychotherapist specializing in traumatic stress and addiction recovery. She has used therapeutic writing and psychodramatic action methods for over 25 years. She provides workshops as well as distance coaching, consultation, and training services. She teaches in several New York area graduate social work programs, is on the core faculty of the Therapeutic Writing Center, and is a member of the training staff at the Kent Institute. Nancy is also an instructor at Journalversity, an international online community of writers, teachers, journal keepers, therapists, and lovers of words. She also serves as a current co-president of the International Federation of Bibliotherapy, oh, Bibliopoetry Therapy. Nancy has been featured in several articles and is a published poet and co-author of a chapter in Creative Arts Space Group Therapy with Adolescents, edited by Craig Hain and Nancy Boyd Webb. You can find more about her practice at www.changeyournarrativetherapy.com or by listening as we're going to get into all the wonderful things that she's doing on this podcast. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Raina. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? It's a good Monday morning. It's good to talk to you. Yes, it, it is. Um, we're almost into the month of September and moving into fall season. Hopefully we'll be getting some cooler weather. It's been pretty hot down here in Florida. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. It's hard to believe it's September already. I know, I know. The year's been moving pretty quickly. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your practice and um, why you decided to name it Change Your Narrative Therapy. Sure, I get that question a lot and I actually love answering it because I get to talk about kind of how I came into this work and what it means to me. But um, as you mentioned, I do practice in both Connecticut and New York, so I do have private offices, of course, with COVID, I'm not currently going to those offices. I'm doing a lot of online work. Sure. And I, yeah, I first came into the field of trauma work, um, actually through the, through the patient door. It had a very bad car accident in 1991. And I always tell people so they can keep breathing that I'm totally fine now. But um, I was not a therapist then. I was a writer and teaching English. And I ended up in a pretty long recovery process from this car accident. And in that process, I had already used writing, but I became acquainted with psychodrama and EMDR and somatic experiencing and internal family systems and biofeedback, all of the things I end up using now, but I, I really felt them in an experiential way, which I guess is really the purpose, right, of experiential <laughs> therapy. Um, yes. When we've had it ourselves, it's, it's that much more powerful. So I, I just was amazed at how they helped me with my recovery journey from trauma. And I went to social work school in the early 90s, which sounds recent to me, but apparently that was quite a while ago. Uh, so I've been practicing all of those methods uh, ever since the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, wonderful. Hey, are you ready to gain clarity for your vision and draft actionable steps to achieve the outcomes you desire for your practice? We at the Creative Clinicians Corner are now offering professional consultation services that help creative therapists organize the ideas spinning in their minds into a strategic map to launch and scale their private practices. 
so you can breathe with ease and confidence and take the action you need to achieve the practice of your dreams. Nothing is insurmountable and knowing your path to success will only inspire you to push through all the roadblocks and you don't have to do it alone. Visit us at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com and see the really affordable packages we have for you right now. And so you're trained in all of those approaches that you just listed. Um, it sounds like you you definitely you did your your graduate training, but then continued to invest in uh, more and more training as you went on. How long was it before you went into practice for yourself? Was that something that you knew that you were going to do or just kind of made your way there? That's a great question. No, private practice was not my original intention straight out of school. I did a lot of community-based work and I still do. Um, and I did a lot of school-based work and I do that now more as a consultant. And I worked in the foster care system. Um, for several years and really loved all of that. And I just ended up creating a private practice so that I could use even more creative approaches than I could often under the umbrella of a system. And so that's mm -hmm. really how it started. And then it just kept growing. And I met some colleagues in Connecticut and they said, why don't you come share an office with us? So I did that. And um, I'm a lifelong learner. I think my problem is stopping learning, um, <laughs> which is never going to happen, by the way. No, no. It, there's too much to there's too much to learn. If you're curious, um, it's it's hard to shut that part off of yourself or within yourself. I think. Absolutely. You know, I realize I didn't fully finish one of your questions. So about the name, change your narrative for for a while. I was using a name called wellness metaphors because most of what I do is really grounded in what's right with people. And even though I have all this training about the DSM and I know you know all this, just having a certain set of symptoms does not describe somebody and getting rid of those symptoms does not equal happiness or feeling well-adjusted or like you're thriving. So I just got really mm -hmm. curious about more and more wellness approaches. I went to um, a nutrition school, the Integrative Institute for um, Nutrition in New York City, and did their program and just kept getting more and more holistic. And it really became clear to me that the root of a lot of our suffering, however we frame it, is the story that we're telling ourselves mm -hmm. or the story that other people have told about us that we've incorporated perhaps or the story that we feel like we have to tell others. And so of course CBT can address that in a cognitive way, but as an experiential therapist, I just really thought that was a good name because people would ask me to describe wellness metaphors and what does that mean and change your narrative really almost speaks for itself. Uh, I have people who call up and say, Hey, I'd like to change my narrative. Can you help me do that? It just That's wonderful. Start. Yes, it is great. On the phone call, we're we're in the middle of a session just because of the name of the business. So I didn't expect that either. Uh, that's really powerful, though, when you think about um, the names that we choose and and how important that is to connect with the clients that we're seeking to help. Mm -hmm. You know, so wellness metaphors was the original name and then you rebranded to change your narrative therapy. And so I'm assuming that in all the approaches that you're utilizing in your practice, you're bringing that, um, you're bringing that to the table in each one of how do you work with your client to change their story. Um, and I know that you do a lot with therapeutic writing. Mm -hmm. for, for listeners that may not be or, or may not be knowledgeable or have not been exposed to this idea of therapeutic writing, which I think most of us are aware of journaling, but I think when we go into the realm of therapeutic writing, um, it, it's a little bit more 
Could you explain a little bit the difference between just your typical journaling and therapeutic writing? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. And it does come up a fair amount. So a lot of the training that I have in journal therapy, which is a form of expressive writing, and that's where I teach at the Therapeutic Writing Institute, Kay Adams, one of my primary trainers, uh, developed a structure of writing interventions from the very, very structured to less structured. And the probably the least structured form of writing is free writing, which we're all fairly familiar with. And many well-intentioned therapists have said to their client, you know, you should really get a journal. And mm -hmm. it's a great recommendation, but it's got no structure. And so for clients who may already be struggling with a lack of internal structure or difficulty with self-regulation or emotions or floods of memories that happen as a natural part of, of trauma exposure, that is really not the way for them to begin writing. And so therapeutic writing is really about the differential application of writing prompts to fit the person's circumstance and in a clinical sense, perhaps their symptoms and their ego strengths. Journaling is something that people sort of just do self-directed on their own, and they may not be writing towards a prompt that's about positive change or integration or coherence or making meaning. And that's really where the research points to the healing benefit is that perceptual shift and integrating the past, present, and the future, which most people on their own are probably not going to necessarily be doing that. They're venting or they're dumping, which right. is useful, but it has a, a shelf life to it as well. Sure. And so um, what would that look like if, if you were working with a client, giving them structured prompts would they then bring the writing into you and you would discuss it together? Um, how does that part work? Well, that's a great question. Um, a lot of people ask that because I, I think writing as an activity can be a trigger for people in terms sure. of if they had a difficult, right? Like difficult school experience or they didn't feel successful at writing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I do starts in the office um, or starts on the Zoom, depending where we're meeting. And then people have their experience of writing in a way that's titrated and um, supportive. So I might give them five minutes to write a quick response and then we'll talk about it. Sometimes they don't show me their writing. Actually, often they don't. We'll talk mm. about their process and their reflection of their writing. But there's many times that I do not directly see a client's actual journal or actual writing. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I know that you're going to be teaching at the upcoming uh, 2020 New York Expressive Therapy Summit. Mm -hmm. And your session is titled Sharing Our Resilient Stories Through Writing and Action. Yes. And can you speak a little bit about that work and how you are helping your clients to build resiliency through their expressive methods? Oh, absolutely. And I have to say, um, you know, of course, it's so difficult, the circumstances of everybody from a public health point of view. And I love the summit. It's the thing I save my time and money for every year for the last 10 years, um, mm -hmm. but what a cool opportunity to see presenters from all over the world. And I just, I don't know, I'm really excited. And the fact that it spans three weekends, I think is, is quite brilliant. So mm -hmm. I think I can't really talk about the workshop without naming a few of the elements of resilience. And of course we could do an entire uh, you know, graduate semester on resilience, but I, I understand we do not have time for that. Uh, but really the key points that I'm going to be addressing through the expressive arts, um, resilience really starts with a self-awareness and with a mindful attention, not just attention, but a non-judging, 
objective sort of paying attention that holds the nervous system in a higher state of calm because without mindful attention, we can go right into the difficult memories or triggers that um, tend to give us, I mean, our mind has a million thoughts a day, most of which are not real, and the body responds because the nervous system is in the present. And so everything that we think creates a cascade of somatic responses because the body doesn't know that it's not real and that it's not happening right now. So really that level of paying attention can absolutely be done through writing. Writing can slow down time and increase people's flexibility and ability to be stable um, in the moment, which is just a big part of resilience. And I would say another part is self-care, uh, which we use as a buzzword all the time, and it means yeah. many different things, right? But in this sense, I'm really talking about some degree of acceptance and resolution and letting go of something, whether that's letting go of it mentally or emotionally or physically. And that's a process that takes time and it's best to involve the body. Bessel van der Kolk um, you know, is quite famous for saying that if you don't involve the body in a trauma resolution, your treatment is incomplete. So things like psychodrama, where people simply may be getting up on their feet to answer a question in an embodied way, which one still can do on Zoom. I'm amazed to see some of the applications of this work online. And also writing is an embodied activity. And then I guess the last piece is not certainly the least important. I think nowadays it may in fact be the most important for people that they need to feel positive connection. They're looking for community and relationship and witnessing. And resilience in its you know, textbook definition is about bringing people back to their pre-crisis state. But what I find in my work, having been a trauma therapist for the last 20 years, it's almost exclusively the work that I do, the post-traumatic growth that's possible for people, not just to get back to baseline, but to be thriving in some mm -hmm. particular way that, that was not happening before. And I think writing is a brilliant way to catalog some of that progress and the oh, enactment yeah. and embodiment of psychodrama along with the, the witnessing aspect and role-taking and role-developing is just great cognitive rehearsal and behavioral mm. rehearsal. So that's probably, you know, soup to nuts more than you were looking for, but I get excited when I talk about this. No, it, it is. It's wonderful. And um, I just for listeners who may not have any experience or knowledge of psychodrama, can you speak a little bit about how that process works and, and what that is in comparison to, say, traditional talk therapy or psychotherapy? That's another great question. And of course, we could talk a long time about that as well. Definitely. But psychodrama. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> Psychodrama was developed by J.L. Moreno, and um, it's really about externalizing and concretizing stories that either are internal, so there might be an intra-psychic drama, or it could be an inter-psychic between people. But it's a way to, and even in individual therapy, I use it, um, if someone's talking and kind of venting about someone, I'll say, well, what would you like to say to this person? And simply moving an empty chair into their sight line and imagining that that person is there and speaking in the first person to them and being able to role reverse. And what would that person say back to you? And then take your own role. It's a dialogue, much like we might have in our head, except it gets us out of the obsession and it gets us out of the rumination because it puts it into real time and it's interactive. So the ability to develop an observing ego and create empathy is exponentially raised because it's a real interaction. 
rather than a sort of static one where we revisit our part and we don't necessarily think about the other person. Mm. I love how you describe that. Um, it gives such a beautiful picture. I think some people may be exposed to this type of work um, through like some gestalt therapy approaches, um, but may not have been exposed to psychodrama in their, um, in their studies. And it's one of the expressive therapies, I think, that um, doesn't always rise to the surface as much and, and garner as much attention as some of the others. Uh, so thank you for that. And so, oh, absolutely, you're welcome. And I was just gonna just give props to my trainers. Um, I've had several, but I have been at the Hudson Valley Psychodrama Institute for the last, oh geez, I don't even wanna say these things out loud. Um, probably like 18 years doing a variety of different things. Um, but it's the other piece is, is community in terms of participating in the method because the person telling the story will pick group members to be auxiliaries. So people are chosen to be put in a role and in that sense, different than talk therapy. Um, while talk therapy people are supportive of someone's story, they don't necessarily have a role or a part in it. And people mm -hmm. get picked for roles based on something called telly. So it's an internal gut feeling that, you know, something about someone's energy makes me feel like they could play the role of my mother. And being able to name those kinds of intuitive hits that sometimes are not entirely right, but they're right for that protagonist, gives the group member a chance to be of service to people. And I just feel like that is a unique opportunity in psychotherapy groups that talking just cannot achieve. As much as I love words, I would say they do have <laughs> limitations. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I'm gonna be, um, I'm gonna be speaking with Rebecca Walters, um, of the Hudson Valley Psychodrama Institute uh, later today and interviewing her about her work. So I'm excited to talk to her too. Um, That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what are you gonna be doing and teaching in your session um, in terms of writing and action? What can people expect? Uh, generally, what you could expect from most of my workshops is a, a deep dive into the experience and then a little deconstruction. It's, it's only a two-hour workshop. Often I do day-long um, formats, and I, I did not do that this year. So it's going to be a little bit more brief, but we'll be doing some warm-ups that are action-based and some writing warm-ups. Um, I love taking advantage of the breakout room and I purposely made it a very large workshop in terms of capacity. Normally in person, I will cap things at 20 or 30. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that with this one because part of the goal of the workshop is in fact community building. So there'll be a lot of pair and share activities and creating things in small groups and then large group witnessing for people who choose to share. But lots of opportunities for privacy to do work alone or with one or two people and chances to share, but also options not to share. Um, I, one of my other trainers, John Evans, is an expressive writing facilitator and I took a workshop with him a couple of years ago. And the expressive writing model is really not about sharing at all. It's about a deep internal experience and then a reflection, right, that processes mm -hmm. that like a meta statement. And then people will share from the meta statement. And there's all kinds of research reasons for doing that because you're a little bit in a more high functioning ego state. And sometimes people sharing raw aspects of their just created writing, they could be a little dissociated at that moment in, in a natural sort of a way because they got deeply into their experience or it could just be so new to them, they don't even yet know it and know how they feel about it. And then they're sharing it for the response of others. So there's, it's, it's different than a lot of people think it is. They fear that they'll have to write 
well or correctly or share. And I just want to dispel all of those myths because that is not true. And you can be an introvert in psychodrama. I'm towards the introvert scale. So the way I do psychodrama is probably different than a super extroverted person, but I really love the two methods together. And I've been blending them, gosh, probably the last 15 years. Wow. Okay. I'm glad that you shared about the myths. I think that each modality, each expressive modality has its own myths that um, we have to contend with, uh, whether it be play, whether it be art, music, um, psychodrama, writing. Um, there's lots of myths that come from the story that people tell themselves about it uh, coming in, right? Oh, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. I haven't Absolutely. done that in blah, blah, blah years or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so there's no need for people to feel like they have to be an expert in writing um, or like at a publishing level. It's more of just being able to express yourself and, um, and no need to share, which is wonderful too, especially in the context of a large group um, training opportunity. Now Absolutely. You and you know, actually to that point, Raina, I would, I would also add that sometimes being a quote unquote good writer can be an interference. I don't know if you find this in the work that you do, but people who already gravitate towards it and feel good at it, then they have that inner critic and in a different way than somebody who doesn't feel proficient. And I probably a third of my practice is therapists and professionals and teachers. So getting them to free up their playfulness to write in a silly or purposely incorrect way in terms of grammar um, takes some doing, but it's helpful in terms of spontaneity and creativity as well. Mm, that's so true. I think that um, in, in how I've seen it play out in the art is when somebody is really technically proficient as an artist, they're able to utilize that in service of their defense mechanisms, their ego defense mechanisms. And so what might be able to be uncovered um, if they allowed things to freely flow might get stuck and not come to the surface. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. No, that makes total sense. So I know you had mentioned that typically you would do an all day um, experiential workshop at the summit training. Obviously things are different this year. Everything's going to be online. But what I do know is I went to your website and you have so many additional opportunities for training, intensive training in the processes that you specialize in. Can you share a little bit about that aspect of your practice? Oh, absolutely. Um, so the, the modalities for which I'm a trainer are really in the writing camp. So the, um, there's a poetry therapy certification program, and there's a journal therapy certification program. And so the journal therapy program lives out of the Therapeutic Writing Institute, and then I'll, I teach for them online. And then when the student is at the point where they're ready to do their supervised facilitation, I generally have a cohort of people who are in the end stages of their training, and we will meet uh, a couple of times a month and go over some of their plans, their case reviews. And I also make the arts part of supervision. So we'll be using psychodramatic methods or journaling or poetry as part of the reflective process of supervision, which just makes it, you know, people definitely get out of their heads when, when you're doing that. And the poetry therapy certification, there's three different levels of that. There, Poetry therapy still has a developmental credential, so you don't have to be a therapist. Of course, you don't get the title um, in the certification, 
of therapy, but it's a certified applied poetry facilitator. And these are folks who have, it's a post-bachelor's certificate um, and it takes about two years. So they would have expertise in selecting literature and dealing with developmental populations and life transitions. And I think the largest number of people flocking to the therapeutic writing field right now are in that camp. Maybe they're coaches, maybe they're teachers, um, but they're not necessarily therapists. And that's an interesting change for the field. And I think it's really exciting. Um, so there's that. And then the other two credentials are clinically based, um, a certified poetry therapist and a registration in poetry therapy. And they have work with clinical populations, um, more coursework about assessment and attuning poetry to certain clinical conditions. But we, we all speak in metaphors all the time. And when you kind of learn to listen for that and capture that and cultivate it, um, it's a lot of fun. And I suppose one could say it's even found in things like NLP. So if you follow neuro-linguistic programming and it might be used you know, for a sales method in some realms where you go buy a car and you say what kind of car you want and they're listening to do you use tactile language or are you visual or are you paying attention to the auditory piece of how the engine's gonna sound. So it's that kind of paying attention but for a super different purpose to intimately mm. get to know people's inner worlds and and meet them there. And, and then of course, be able to shift it in a positive direction towards uh, treatment goals. Very cool. Very Yeah, cool. it is very cool. I, you know, you have to rein me in because I get excited <laughs> when I start talking. I have a friend who says, um, Nancy, we've been teaching college long enough that we could say in 10 minutes what takes other people five. So I appreciate that statement. Oh. You know, I think there's something beautiful, though, to feel really excited and um, to still be so passionate about the work um, after having been involved in it for so long. Um, and, and I think in particular in the work that we do as experiential therapists, it's never the same. Every day is so different and um, it doesn't never gets boring. <laughs> no, not at all. No, that, that create that creative spark that comes with the work um, is renewing. And so it makes sense to be excited and passionate about it and want to share um, in depth. I certainly appreciate it. And which is why I decided I wanted to create the podcast so that I could talk to other therapists about the work that they're doing and um, and hopefully you know raise awareness to uh, just the general population too um, as you were saying more people are flocking to the the field who are coming from different um, backgrounds varied backgrounds and I think the more that the general population, understands, learns, acquaints itself with um, the creative methods and creative approaches to therapy, um, I think it'll help to break down more barriers and stigma about people accessing help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, I haven't done it in years, but I used to go to Capitol Hill with um, Encada and do the lobby day and, you know, speak to staffers and representatives about how powerful the expressive arts are and you know often they're nonverbal approaches that surpass language barriers or cultural differences and in terms of trauma treatment i just don't know of anything more effective than expressive arts so you're right it is it's an opportunity for additional exposure mm -hmm. yeah so i know you spoke quite a bit about the certification trainings that you offer um, through your practice. But I also, when I was on your website, I saw that there were other opportunities for people to do kind of a deep dive. Maybe they attend the session 
at the summit and they realize, oh, wow, this is really, really cool. I want to learn more about it. It looked like you offered some, you know, brief introductions um, into the work, but they're definitely longer than the two-hour session that you're offering at the summit. Can you speak a little bit about um, those opportunities? Oh, absolutely. Raina, you really read my website. I'm very <laughs> impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, actually, yeah. I just did one yesterday. So once a month, I do a free forum um, that is two hours. It's generally the third Sunday or last yesterday was the fourth Sunday, but it's usually the third Sunday of the week. And I purposely do it from two to four because folks all over the globe are finding this work. So yesterday we had a woman from Dubai, um, a woman from Israel. Often there's a, another participant from Oman and Japan and Estonia. So like all over the world, and this never could have happened in a face-to-face -face format. And so people are zooming in to this community writing experience. Every month has a different theme. Yesterday, I don't know if you'll be interested in this one, but it was about um, harvesting the summer. And so we were reviewing mm. the bizarre nature of our last six months <laughs> and <laughs> determining which things memory-wise do we want to keep and how would we know that we kept them and which things would we like to distance ourselves from and what would help us to do that. So it became about all kinds of stuff and people from all over the world's global experience of COVID-19 super interesting and the diversity opportunity to learn from other people. So that's something that just happens once a month. And then I have a group sequences, usually six week groups, or sometimes I'll teach a class. I'll take a book that I like about therapeutic writing and create a course that lasts for six to eight weeks. Um, so there's all kinds of things that people can do. So I'm so glad you saw all that. I had no idea yeah. that you, you were paying attention. That's good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, I, I definitely, when I interview someone, I, I want to understand what it is that they're doing and, and the diverse ways that they're structuring their practice. Um, one of the things I'm passionate about is helping other people to create their own um, creative arts psychotherapy practice because as you said from the beginning, um, doing so allows you to practice in a way that it, it breaks down some of the constraints that might exist if you continue to work in a community mental health model, which doesn't necessarily have the flexibility to work in all of these different ways, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and when we have our own practice, it can be so much more than just the direct face-to-face -face individual therapy work, but um, these other ways of creating community and creating together, um, which you're doing a lot of, which is beautiful. And I, I love this idea of being able to, to do that and have people from all over the world connect. What an amazing experience to get to learn and, and hear the stories of people from other cultures. Um, and of course, I'm sure there's a lot of um, connection of, you know, we might be coming from all different places, but we're still having very similar experiences. Just really cool. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also been helpful, I think, to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement across the globe um, and for people to have deep witnessing towards one another about issues of anti-racism. And I'm actually, lately I've been bringing aspects of expressive arts into one of the colleges where I teach. I was asked to lead a staff meeting with the department dean and you know some of the professors about how could we use these sorts of methods to talk about difficult topics without exposing anybody's personal story. So I did a little piece about sociodrama 
which is mm. related to psychodrama. And um, it was amazing because most of these folks had not, they'd heard of the methods, but they had never experienced them. And so participating, you know, people were either the structure of racism or a human being or a witness. And it was very general and it was very quick, but it showed them the power of experiential methods and how we can reach people in a different way than verbally and just cognitively, which is, you know, funny because many of us in academia are big readers and big thinkers, but thinking doesn't solve every problem. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. That's awesome that the university called you in to do that work um, and facilitate the conversation in a different way. Yeah, I probably got really excited and then I got voluntold, but yes, <laughs> it was it was really great that that happened. I agree. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, since you brought it up that those conversations are coming up in your groups with people from around the world, what have you been learning about um, people from different cultures' experience of the the Black Lives Matter movement? It's interesting. I actually have two groups happening right now about those topics. One is about positionality and the ways we construct social identity and how privilege is built into that, you know, implicit bias and privilege. And there's people from around the globe in that one. Um, I think the surprise to some folks is that it's really about deep listening um, because learning about each other takes so much time and to really be able to back off of our own experience and any of our prior assumptions that we might have about a particular culture, even if it's one we think we know about. And then it's the intersectionality of meeting that specific person from their specific circumstance mm -hmm. and they start to tell their story. There's nothing other about that. It really brings to life the individuality of each person's experience. And I think that has been deep and surprising to people, just touching in a way that they didn't expect. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really cool. And so you said you had two groups. That's one, one group that you're um, working with. What's the other topic that you're well, the, working on? Yeah, the other one ends tomorrow, but it's been about voice. Um, so all the ways in which silence is sometimes about um, safety. It's not always safe to speak. Sometimes silence is life-preserving and other times it's dangerous. And there are poems about, um, you know, we used Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings mm. about oppression and voice and constructs of freedom and imprisonment and all the different ways in which that applies to many situations, but the world situation right now. And I think the piece that really gets people about poetry therapy it's not about figuring out the poem. In fact, we never do that because that's literary <laughs> criticism. It's how does this poem touch you and what story does it bring up for you and how can you share that story either on the page or with others? So the poem, I mean, it's important. It's a catalyst and it guides things, but really it's getting people to tell their story for the first time about some of these issues or be able to say in a group, you know what? I don't think I know that much about anti-racism, but I want to. And that's somebody who is in a growth place with that issue. It's not about having it all figured out because I, I really don't think any of us have it all figured out. Oh my gosh, no. I feel like, honestly, the, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. And I, even as a therapist, I feel like I've been doing this work a really long time, but I still don't know enough. I, 
I still sometimes feel like I don't know much. I know I know a lot, but it's just that sense of like the, the <laughs> possibility for learning is endless because of what you were saying that each individual's experience is but one experience. And yes, there are a lot of parallels and similarities, uh, but there are also so many differences. And, and what approach works for one person may not work for another person. And, um, and so in that way, um, it creates those challenges of like, okay, well, I'm doing all these things I know typically work and they're not working in this situation. I have to go back and find something else for this particular individual to connect with them and meet them. And um, yeah, so the learning is constant. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like that's part of the excitement. I haven't been bored since probably 1989 or something, <laughs> because I am always learning something. Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if, if I get to a place of boredom, which I haven't being in private practice, um, but in some of my past jobs, like I, I think it was, there were, there were different types of jobs and, um, and maybe they weren't as in-depth uh, psychotherapy oriented. And, um, and in those jobs, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to move on for a, a greater challenge. Um, but mm -hmm. no, there's, there's definitely, um, way too much to, uh, explore and dive into and learn about to be bored in this work for sure. Absolutely. Well, Nancy, if people wanted to learn more about your trainings, your workshops, um, the work that you do with individuals and groups, where's the best place that they can find you? Probably my website. I mean, on my website are ways to connect with me um, on social media as well as uh, to send me an email. So that's probably the best central place. And I'm an old fashioned person in that I still answer my phone and I, I really like phone calls. So that's okay as well. Oh, wow. That's, that's wonderful. Um, that was one of the first things that I gave away um, in, in my work as a practice owner and gave that to an assistant because I found that it was hard for me um, because I get so involved in the, in the conversation that it would take too long. I wouldn't have enough time in between clients to, to do a return phone call and then they would be stacked up at the end of the day. Um, so I, I gave that task away. But um, so your website is changeyournarrativetherapy.com. Yes, that's correct. And, um, and I'll put that in the show notes. I'll also put how to connect with you on social media in the show notes. And then you said that the, the training institute where you, um, where you teach the poetry therapy uh, certifications, um, the Actually, therapy writing center? Well, that's more private. Um, psychodrama and poetry therapy are both sort of uh, like institute programs. So they don't, mm -hmm. they're not based in a university at this point. Um, so the poetry therapy training that I do is as a private practitioner, but it's connected with the Federation for Biblical Poetry Therapy uh. and the membership organization. If people want like a community to join, there's the National Association for Poetry Therapy and they put on a conference and have an academic journal and that's another piece that folks can have if they want to meet with others who are doing the work. And then this year at the summit, I'm teaching on behalf of the Kent Institute. So Kent is a postgraduate certificate program um, for practitioners who are already licensed, some of whom may be creative arts therapists or maybe not. Maybe 
it's a social worker or an LPC who wants to learn expressive techniques mm -hmm. from a trauma-informed perspective and really ethically how to apply these techniques well. So that's the training program that I'm participating on behalf of in the summit this year. Mm, okay, awesome. And do you know, is their website just the kintinstitute.com or .org? I had it here. Um, Kent's website, it's K-I-N-T uh, institute.org. Okay. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. It's worth reading where they got their name and why they call themselves Kent. Okay, I'll definitely look that up and check it out for sure. Um, well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners um, at all uh, today before we end our call? Oh gosh, what a great question. Um, you know, we've talked about so much. I think my, my takeaway message, if folks hold on to one thing, is that the expressive arts and in particular writing is accessible. So even if you think you might not resonate with it or you even had a prior bad experience, give it another shot and see what it could do for you personally as benefit, but also to enhance your professional practice no matter what you do um, as a professional. So I just think that a lot of folks have had tough experiences with reading and writing. And that's part of the work is to undo that story as well. Mm, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Voices from the Expressive Therapy Summit special series on the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Nancy Sherlong about her work and how she integrates all different types of expressive and therapeutic writing, including poetry therapy, into her, into her work and practice um, in helping people overcome trauma. And um, there were a few things that I felt were key, like a key takeaway. And one really started in the beginning of our conversation where she talked about renaming her practice, right? And she had a practice wellness metaphors. Um, and then decided to change it to change your narrative therapy. And I just thought that was a beautiful insight that as you're going out there and you're creating your practice, you might choose a name and it might work for a while. And then you discover that there's something better that captures the essence of what you do and allows you to connect at a deeper level to the people that you want to work with and, and who need your services. And, um, and I thought that was just a beautiful illustration with uh, how she changed the name of her practice to change your narrative therapy. And then I was thinking about that and how that really applies to our own self-limiting beliefs as we put ourselves out there to create something from nothing, to create a practice that didn't exist before, how we may have to engage in some of our own processes that allow us to rewrite old narratives that are creating limiting beliefs around putting ourselves out there, around being seen, around um, marketing, um, around how much to charge for the services that we provide, um, and, and how the work that she's doing with clients really does apply to us as business owners. And um, I don't know, those were some of the, the key takeaways um, 
I left from our conversation today. And I am sure that uh, anybody who takes uh, Nancy's session at the summit is really gonna have an opportunity to get a deep, deep dive into the experiential process of uh, structured therapeutic prompts to writing that will really get you and your clients the results that you're looking for. Um, so if you are considering it, I highly encourage you to uh, head over to uh, www.expressivetherapysummit.com and you'll be able to look at the full program of all the amazing therapists that are going to be teaching in November. Um, and it's going to be three weekends in November online. And uh, the beautiful thing about how it's being structured this year is you can sign up and just take one session. Um, you don't have to commit to a whole day or a whole weekend. Um, so definitely check that out. And thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.